There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, nice to have you back on the show. It's nice to be back. Had a great vacation, but vacations end and get back to work. Like a distant memory. Exactly. And it was a good vacation. It was only a three-pounder. Three pounds of what exactly? Solid muscle. Solid, Solid muscle. muscle. <laughs> you were working out the whole time you were away, were Absolutely. you? Absolutely, yeah. I don't think doing ice cream curls is actually considered working out, Greg. Well, look at these biceps. <laughs> Well, while you were gone, you missed a couple of episodes. So last week, Steve and I talked about what is an expert. And the reason for it is because two weeks ago, we had Paul Eidelman join us from Russell Investments. And that was a good show where we talked about something about inflation. And it got us thinking about, well, what is inflation? Why do people talk about it so much? What's the importance of it? Right on. So that's what we're going to get into today. On your first day back on the job... We're going to get into something pretty deep here. It's pretty heavy. Pretty heavy stuff, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about it a little bit. I mean, because sure, everybody hears and talks about inflation and it's all in the news today, these days. So let's just back up a little bit and do some background here. So what is inflation? Inflation, basically, it's a general increase in the cost of goods and services. And the net result of that, basically, is the decline of purchasing power in a given currency. If prices of everything you buy, everything you consume go up, your money is not going to go as far. And that's why when in all of our planning, we always include inflation with regards to all of the lifestyle expenses, because of course, inflation is a significant factor, particularly over long periods of time. Because whatever it is you're buying right now, 10 years ago, that item was probably cheaper. That's right. Absolutely. The other side of inflation is deflation. And that occurs when the purchasing power of your money increases and prices decline doesn't happen all that often, but we've absolutely seen great examples of deflation with regards to technology. What did you pay for your most recent television and what would have that cost five or six years ago? Oh, I remember when the first plasma screens came out. Do you remember how much they were selling for? Oh, yes. $20,000. That's right. Now you can buy one for what, like maybe 800 bucks at Costco? Exactly. Yeah, crazy. So it's easy to measure the price changes of individual products, just as we've been talking about the price of televisions. But most individuals need a big and diversified set of products, as well as a bunch of different services for living a comfortable life. So those would include commodities like grains or food grains, metal, fuel, utilities, like electricity and transportation, services like healthcare, entertainment, labor, stuff like that. And so when we measure inflation, we're trying to measure the overall impact of price changes for a diversified set of products and services and get a single value representation of the increase in price level of goods and service over a period of time. And that's typically what we call the inflation rate. And we'll get into that in a little bit, how we measure that. So what happens, though, is as the currency loses value, prices rise, the currency buys fewer goods and services. And that loss of purchasing power impacts the general cost of living 
for everybody, the common public, and that ultimately leads to a deceleration in economic growth. So to combat that, the country's appropriate monetary authority, like in Canada, it's the Canadian Central Bank. In the U.S., it's the Federal Reserve. They take measures necessary to manage the supply of money and credit to keep inflation within allowable or permissible or reasonable limits to keep the economy running smoothly. And typically, they want that inflation number to run somewhere around 2% or less, right? That's right. And we'll get into a little bit about where it's at right now. But you mentioned something interesting. As a currency loses value, prices rise and it buys fewer goods and services. I would argue that the currency never really loses value. It just loses how much it can buy, right? That's right. So like a dollar is a dollar. Yeah, it's just purchasing power. Right. So there are causes of inflation. An increase, as you've mentioned, in the supply of money is the root of inflation. So although this can play out through different mechanisms in the economy, Money supply can be increased by that monetary authority. So as you mentioned, the Bank of Canada or the U.S. Federal Reserve. And how do they do that? They do that by printing and giving away more money to individuals or more commonly by loaning new money into existence as a reserve account credit through the banking system by purchasing government bonds from banks on the secondary market. Now, in English, I want to repeat that whole part in English, Greg. Yes. Is that that's basically called quantitative easing which isn't, well, I mean, it is English, but it's a little harder to understand. All it really means, I know you're going to get into it later, is that the central bank goes out into the marketplace and purchases bonds that are already trading. Now, why do they do that? Well, they do that because they're increasing the demand for those particular bonds. And as the demand for those bonds increase, the prices increase, and therefore the yields on those bonds decreases. They actually control interest rates by doing that. This is monetary policy or a form of it. And so in all such cases of money supply increased, the money, as you mentioned earlier, loses its purchasing power. In other words, it buys less goods. But there's mechanisms of how this drives inflation, and they're classified into three types. And I'll get into them. There's the demand pull inflation, the cost push inflation, and the built-in inflation. And there's a few others that we could get into, like hyperinflation, reflation, deflation you mentioned, things like that. But in the demand-pull effect, demand-pull inflation occurs when an increase in the supply of money and credit stimulates overall demand for goods and services in an economy to increase more rapidly than the economy's production capacity. So basically, this increase increases demand. And as we know from our basic economic classes, if you have an increase in demand and a constant supply, well, the price goes up. Right on. In the cost push effect, cost push inflation is a result of the increase in prices working through the production process inputs. So when additions to the supply of money and credit are channeled into a commodity or other asset markets, And especially when this is accompanied by a negative economic shock to the supply of key commodities, similar to maybe a global lockdown, Greg? Sure, yeah. Global pandemic. Basically, the cost for all kinds of intermediate goods rise. So that makes sense. In a global economic shutdown, there's nothing being made. And so there's a limited amount of supply. The demand may curtail, but not enough. And so it pushes the price up. Look at what happened this past year with lumber prices. When the pandemic started, a lot of the lumber mills shut down because, first of all, they couldn't operate on full staff when we were in a shelter in place or isolating at home. And so the lumber mills shut down, which reduced the demand for lumber. And at the same time, I think a lot of the 
strategy behind that with lumber mills and other types of businesses like that, where that, well, we're in a pandemic, what are the odds that there's going to be a huge demand for lumber? Well, as it turned out, there was a massive demand for lumber. People started buying houses because they thought, well, we were able to work from home and now I'd like to change my home location. I'd like to live somewhere else. Or they were renovating their space. Absolutely, they were renovating. And so all of a sudden you've got this massive demand for lumber and a very limited supply. And as a result, lumber prices skyrocketed. And so again, that not only is a higher price for lumber, which most of us don't buy lumber directly, although some do if you're doing a renovation, but we buy stuff that lumber is a key element of. So if you're buying a new house, lumber prices, I think, added twenty dollars or $30,000 to the price of a new house. So that's definitely the cost push effect right there. You see it in vehicles with the semiconductor issues. For sure. Okay. The last one I'll talk about is built-in inflation. So it's related to adaptive expectations, the idea that people expect current inflation rates to continue in the future. So as the price of goods and services rises, workers and others come to expect that they'll continue to rise in the future at a similar rate and demand more costs or wages to maintain their standard of living. So basically, they're saying that it's like expecting a constant growth rate. There's increased wage results that are passed down to consumers. If wages go up on an annual basis, I don't know, pick a number, 2% per annum, well, then that gets pushed down the chain. So there's a built-in inflation that results in this wage price spiral. Sure. Yeah. Wages are a very important component of the final product, whatever it is that you're buying. And as the cost of wages are just like input costs, as those costs go up, the prices have to go up and that does create that kind of a self-fulfilling spiral. Well, interestingly though, when I remember studying economics, of course, in school, and we talked about the stickiness of wages and how... Let's say somebody loses their job and they're a professional in their field and they're paid, I don't know, pick a number, $100,000 a year is the going rate for this particular professional. They will not accept a job for $50,000 a year just to be employed. They're looking to recapture their old wage. And it's only after being unemployed for some long period of time that they will accept a lower paying job. And so therefore, economists always talk about how wages are sticky. People will hold on to the idea that they will get what they were getting before. I think I took us on a total aside there, by the way, but but I think it worked. You see it on very rare occasions that wages are rolled back. Typically, that happens more with government than it does in the private sector. Very difficult in the private sector to actually come to a wage agreement, whether it's through a union or directly with employees that actually has wages going backwards. Well, here's one. You have the Border Patrol people in Canada. What are they called? Canada Border Patrol? (laughs) You know, they're talking about opening up the border for travel and then the Border Patrol people go on strike because they want a higher wage. I was going to argue, well, they weren't really doing much for the last 18 (laughs) months, so... Maybe I've offended some Border Patrol people. Well, but. It could be. and But that's just everyone really is looking out for their own situation. And if inflation looks like it's a problem, then like anyone, well, I need more money. The purchasing yeah. power is down and I need more money. So let's talk a little bit about how inflation is tracked. So there's a lot of different types of calculations. So depending on the selected set of goods and services, you get different calculations and different ways of tracking a price index. But the main one that we hear about in Canada and the U.S. is the consumer price index. And basically that's a measure 
that examines the weighted average of prices of a basket of goods and services, which are of primary consumer needs. So they would include transportation, food, and medical care. CPI is calculated by taking price changes for each item in the predetermined basket of goods and averaging them based on their relative weight in the whole basket. And the prices in consideration are the retail prices of each item as available for purchase by the individual. Actually, on that note, you can go to bankofcanada.ca and they outline what they consider part of the CPI in Canada. And I looked just before we recorded here and they said food, shelter, furniture, clothing, transportation, and recreation. And interestingly, they have an inflation calculator. So you can actually go and look back to 1914 and put in what the price of something was. Well, you can pick any year, but it starts in 1914. And you can see what that is in today's dollars. That's a very interesting calculator to go look at. Well, it is. And the reason, because it's a relatively standard basket. And so when you're looking at that basket of goods and services from one month to the next and one year to the next, it gives you a pretty good idea of how prices have changed. And so the changes basically in the CPI are used to assess price changes associated with cost of living, I should say. So it is one of the more frequently used statistics for identifying periods of inflation or deflation. Now, in the U.S., you mentioned the Canadian situation, and again, in the U.S., the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports the CPI on a monthly basis as well, and goes back to 1913, so very similar on both sides of the border. Interestingly, there are differences in the components of the basket of goods and services. For example, I was just reading in one of the CIBC documents about how the Canadian CPI does not include the cost of used cars, whereas the U.S. one does. Well, there's a lot of argument over what should be included and what shouldn't. That's right. Certain things will affect certain individuals more than others. But again, as a general guide to know whether inflation is a factor or not, it's sort of the best we have. And I think the key thing to remember is that when we're talking about inflation, we're talking about two things. We're talking about what are the actual prices today and then what is the rate of change? And the rate of change is usually referred usually to the previous month or the previous year. And I'll talk about that in a bit because it can sort of sometimes lead you down the wrong path if you're only looking at rate of change. Well, and in our financial planning that we do with clients, which again, Greg, are we promoting that people do a financial plan? Absolutely, we are, Colin. Yeah, of course they should. It's like having the foundation before you build a house. You kind of need it. But in that planning exercise, we tend to use an inflation rate of 2% per annum. And that number isn't sort of picked out of the air. It's a historical higher than historical rate, slightly higher than historical rate of inflation. And it's also the target rate that most central banks, well, certainly the central banks in Canada and the U.S., use to define as the right level of inflation. So let's talk about that a little bit. Inflation can be thought of as either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on which side you take and how rapidly the change is occurring, for example. So if you have assets, let's say, that are priced in currency, like property or commodities, things like that, It's good to see some inflation because the price of your assets are rising, and therefore you can sell those assets at a higher price. However, the buyers of those assets may not be all that happy with inflation is because they're going to have to pay more for those things. And we're certainly seeing it. And speaking of my vacation, every time I go on vacation, I'm deeply offended by how inflation has affected the price of lakefront property. Because certainly a shrewd investment in lakefront property 20 or 30 years ago would be one of the best investments you could have made. Would it have been a shrewd investment or would it have been that you had some money 20 or 30 years ago and you happened to cross a property that was for sale and you just waited 30 years and it went up in value? It could be both of those. 
Yeah, like that sure. always gets me about the housing market where people will say, you know, you never lose money in houses. I mean, that's a bunch of bunk. I've lost money in houses. Oh, yeah. It's just when you're buying and when you're selling and where you are in the cycle, right? That's right. Exactly. Time is definitely on your side in that area. On the other hand, so people that are holding assets denominated in currency, like if you're holding cash or in some cases, some bonds, they may not like inflation all that much because the real value of your holdings get eroded. And bonds are a unique situation. We've talked about those before, and I'm sure we'll be talking about bonds again in the future because, of course, inflation is tightly correlated with interest rates, and that can have an impact on bond pricing. Now, the other thing about inflation is it does promote some speculation, both by businesses and risky projects and by individuals and stocks of companies because they expect better returns than inflation. And you hear this a lot when we're talking about, well, if you want growth, if you want to stay ahead of inflation, you have to invest in stocks. And that's absolutely true. And again, not to get too deep into the bond discussion, but every bond that's out there also has an inflation expectation built into the yield. And so bondholders also expect to get a real return over and above inflation. Whether we do or not is to be determined. Well, I want to talk about that for a minute, if you don't mind. Sure. Just when you go to the bank and they want to sell you a five-year GIC that's earning less than 1% or something like that, I mean, you have to know that you have a negative return. That's right. A real rate of return. A real rate will of be return. Because inflation is running more than 1%. That's right. And those GICs are priced that I'm just picking a number at 1% because interest rates are so low. So I was looking at this, or I just want to make a comment about this, is that when it comes to investing as a stock investor, we actually want some inflation, like you just pointed out, because companies make more money during times of inflation. That's right. And a company's stock price is based off of its future expected cash flow. And so if there's inflation, their expected cash flow is expected to go up. Therefore, their stock price is expected to go up. So it kind of works for us. But as a consumer, it's where we don't want inflation. So buying that house that now is like $300,000 more than it was last year, that's a big hit. And that's why people holding assets are in favor of some inflation. And I think in the end, there's got to be a balance. Because what happens is if the purchasing power of money is falling over time, there might be a greater incentive to spend now instead of saving and trying to spend later because you might not be able to keep up, as you point out, with a 1% saving rate and a 2 or 3% inflation rate. Well, that's just so, math. Yeah. Wait, wait, let's do that math. One, so positive one minus three yeah. equals? Minus two? <laughs> so it's below zero. Exactly. So therefore it's a negative expected return. Right? That's right. And so you do sometimes find that in the early stages of an inflationary period, you may see a boost in economic activities, but then that can obviously decline over time if as a result of the inflation, then interest rates have to move up. And as interest rates move up, then credit becomes harder to get and more expensive to pay for. And that's why in general, most central banks try to target a balanced approach. And they, as they say, they've typically set 2% as their inflation target because it allows for economic growth without the potential for something to get in the way in the form of higher interest rates, borrowing costs, et cetera. So how do we control inflation? Well, number one, you and I have no control over inflation, period. Exactly. Don't, well, we, I, don't, we don't control inflation. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, the country's financial regulators, like the central banks, that's their job. And we hope they do it properly. And they do it by implementing measures through their monetary policy, which basically refers to the action of a central bank to determine the size and rate of growth of the money supply. 
So in the U.S., for example, the Fed's, and when I say Fed, the Federal Reserve, their monetary policy goals include moderate long-term interest rates, price stability, that you heard that a lot, maximum employment, and each of these goals is intended to promote a stable financial environment. And anybody that follows the business news will know that the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank of Canada, they clearly communicate their long-term inflation goals in order to keep a steady long-term rate of inflation, which, as I said earlier, is thought to be beneficial to the economy. So price stability, or a relative constant level of inflation, allows businesses to plan for the future since they know what to expect. And the Federal Reserve believes that this will promote maximum employment, which is determined by sort of non-monetary factors that fluctuate over time and are definitely subject to change. Like global pandemics? Exactly. And so the Federal Reserve doesn't really set a specific goal for maximum employment, and it's largely determined by employers' assessments. We've seen maximum employment doesn't mean zero unemployment because at any time there's going to be a certain level of volatility. And I think if you think back to pre-pandemic times, mm-hmm. I think the unemployment rate in the U.S. and in Canada were in that 3 to 4% range. Well, I was just going to say that actually I looked at this statistic the other day for somebody. It was 3.5% unemployment rate in the U.S. in, let's call it, January of 2020. By March of 2020, it was 15%. And today it's running around 6%. And back when it was 3.5%, I mean, that was considered full employment. You've reached a point where there's always going to be some people that are not in the workforce for whatever reason, or they're looking for jobs or what have you. And so that largely is full employment. Well, but actually economists would argue that that number is a bit skewed because it doesn't include people that have given up on looking for jobs. So when it says full employment is three and a half percent, there could be another, I don't know, a few basis points of people that have just given up. Absolutely. So just to get into something you mentioned earlier, monetary authorities, they sometimes will take exceptional measures in extreme conditions of the economy. So we talked about quantitative easing and the normal methods that the central banks may use to increase money supply is they'll have reserves which are drawn on by the major banks. The banks then use those reserves to lend money to individuals or businesses, and and that puts money in the hands of those individuals' businesses, and spending occurs, and the economy trucks along. But after 2008, the great financial crisis, the U.S. Federal Reserve has kept interest rates basically near zero, and they started quantitative easing, which was basically, as you talked about, a bond-buying program. But they did it by buying government bonds in 2008. Correct. And that's changed now. It has. So, well, in addition to buying government bonds and mortgage-backed securities, they're now also buying corporate bonds. That opened up a whole new area of essentially their ability to control interest rates because, of course, interest rates on government bonds are not the same as they are on corporate bonds. But by buying corporate bonds this time around, they were able to help control those high-yield or corporate bond yields. Interestingly, back when we were coming out of the global financial crisis, We had lots of people talking, you know, lots of clients were saying, oh my God, there's going to be hyperinflation. The only thing you can do if you're of sound mind is to buy gold and silver, because (laughs) those are the only things that will hold up in this hyperinflationary environment that we're definitely going to see. How's silver done? Well, not all that well. And (laughs) I'm not going to hold you to the number, but I think it's a negative return since then. It's been up and down. It's actually showed some signs of life lately. And I think that maybe is more of a meme thing than it is a silver thing. But it just goes to show, though, how expectations of hyperinflation based on the quantitative easing that occurred after 2008, they never came true. And interest rates have stayed extremely low since that time and are still there now. So 
how do you hedge against inflation? We talked about how stocks are considered to be a pretty good hedge against inflation because the rise in stock prices includes the effects of inflation. And also when you have additions to the money supply in basically every country in the world, as, and they come through, as I said, bank credit injections through the financial system, you know, a lot of the immediate effect on prices happens in the financial assets that are priced in currency like stocks. In addition to that, and some people talk, as I said, about gold and silver, precious metals as ways to hedge against inflation that didn't necessarily pan out over the last 12 years. So for us, we usually recommend things that are possibly less speculative. And there are some things that you can invest in. In the U.S., they call them TIPS which are basically real return bonds. The TIP stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Basically, it's a bond issued by the government, and it offers a rate of return, which is set by the coupon, plus whatever inflation happens to be for that year. So if the bond carries a 1% coupon and inflation is 2% that year, then the total return on the bond would be 3% over the course of the next year. Well, I want to get into something that Barry Ritholtz, we're going to give Barry props for this, He came out recently and talked about, so where are we today? Barry finds it helpful to think of inflation coming in different flavors. And I won't go through the whole article that he posted, but I just want to talk about the five things that are important, I guess. So number one, he talked about long-term inflation and elevated annual increases in pricing. So this kind of inflation crimps economic growth. I mean, it forces central banks to do things like you just talked about, raise rates, which impacts everything purchased with credit. So if you buy a car on credit, but the cost of borrowing goes up, well, then it probably impacts things. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. So there's a legitimate concern over long-term inflation. That's something that central banks should be on guard against. And that's why they come out with their inflation numbers. They're looking at, well, where's inflation right now? What do we expect it to be? And where can we keep it range bound, I think is a term that people talk about. Number two, he talks about long-term deflation, which is the flip side where prices continually fall. So if we think about that, I mean, if if it gets too rapid and prices are just falling and falling and falling, well, that becomes a different issue for central banks. It does. Right? And that happened in Japan where prices just continued to fall. And in the stock market, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like I think they had a negative return for like 25 plus years. Many, many years for sure. It started in the late 80s, I believe. There's a reason why central banks have monetary policy that they follow. There's also a reason why our governments have fiscal policy to input what they can into these things too. Number three, gradual deflation where prices can be driven lower in many ways. So economies of scale. So we talked about this where that plasma TV 20 years ago was $20,000 and today it's 800 bucks and comes with a five-year warranty. <laughs> that's, yep. that's a huge difference. Exactly. Right? <laughs> but there's digitization or digitalization. There's automation. There's a global workforce that didn't occur decades ago. How many times do you get a call from a call center in some place other than Canada? Oh, yeah. Where that job used to be in places like New Brunswick. There's transitory inflation. And I would argue that's what we're going through right now. And I know you're going to spend just a minute on it later, but you talked about the price of lumber and it going up in a short period of time. Part of that is in March of 2020, we didn't have inflation. And Paul Eidelman talked about this on our episode two episodes ago. We actually had three months of deflation. And so this period of inflation we're in, which some are calling hyperinflation, he's calling transitory inflation because it's just a short period of catch-up time. And finally, price resets. 
So this is a thing. Supply and demand dictates price and price resets. Yeah. So it occurs when an entire group of goods or services experience some change in price. At some point, there will be a new price equilibrium. And that will fall in the supply and demand curve. And if anybody that wants to talk about supply and demand curves, I think we're pretty happy to show them how they work. Well, for sure. And when you think about price resets, you can think of it as things like even housing, which we talked about. I mean, you can get like a very rapid increase in prices. I believe in Canada, prices have increased 20% in the last year. That's pretty rapid. Now, from here, they likely won't go down. You may see a slowing of the rate of growth and maybe they'll pick up the 2 or 3% pace that's more normal. But this that step increase that Barry talks about there. And the other thing, by the way, and I was just thinking about this the other day as I was paying my Netflix or looking at my Netflix bill, is that Netflix, this is a low price item. But it used to be, I think, nine ninety nine, and it's fourteen ninety nine now, which is a fifty percent increase. And so it's easy for some of these subscription providers to get step increases of fairly dramatic size, but it just doesn't affect people, or they we don't think about it the same way because it's on such a small absolute level. Well, let's talk about that in math, just like we talked about before. I don't know how many subscribers Netflix has. I couldn't tell you. Let's say a hundred million, or let's just use that number. So 100 million, and you say it went up $5 a month. So 100 million subscribers times five equals? $500 million. In new revenue? Every month. Every month. So that's inflation too. So let's look at the current situation in Canada just to wrap up here. There's just a report issued by CIBC Economics and that highlighted that while inflation was reported at 3.7% in July, which seems like a whole lot, that's way bigger than the 2%, which is the target rate, Basically, it's just making up for extremely weak inflation a year ago, which is in the early stages of the pandemic. So in fact, we did go through, as Eidelman mentioned, there was a period of deflation. And so this is what they call the base effect. 3.7% seems like a lot, but it's comparing to a very low period. And if you actually look at just the prices, the consumer price index, basically they're running about 2% inflation from before the pandemic. So prices went down. Then they went back up. It seems like a big jump. Sometimes you can't rely only on the rate of inflation. You have to look at the actual index to see how things are going. Now, this contrasts a little bit with the U.S. where inflation rate was 5.4% in July. But if you look at their annual price increases, they're running about 42 So they are running hotter inflation than we're seeing in Canada. And there could be a number of reasons for that. The Canadian dollar had quite a strong period leading up into the summer. And that makes U.S. imports cheaper, basically. And so that reduces the effect of inflation. And also the huge stimulus given by the U.S. government, basically in the form of direct payments to individuals, was much larger in scope than what was done in Canada. Well, and you so, mentioned used automobiles being part of the CPI in the U.S. That's right. With the semiconductor issues, I know that there are used vehicles that are leaving Canada and being sold in the U.S. for much higher cost than what they even were originally sold for. Absolutely. So again, you have to really look into the details and make sure we understand what we're looking at. But that's inflation for you. So what do we do about it? What can we do about it? Or how should we think about it from an investment standpoint? Well, the first thing, as always, is you want to make sure that your asset allocation properly reflects not only your risk tolerance, but also your risk capacity. And looking at risk capacity, we have to say, well, okay, what are some of the factors that could affect the markets that we're investing in, the bond markets and the stock markets, and real estate probably? And never mind what might happen if we assume certain things could happen, 
are you prepared? Are you able to withstand the potential downside risks of something negative? Secondly, I think you have to believe this. You have to believe that market timing based on an expectation of any particular event occurring is a very difficult thing to do. And we've talked about market timing a lot in these podcasts. Should we get out before the presidential election? Are our stocks priced too high? Should we get out now? And is inflation a factor and our interest rates going up is just another type of prediction that people might be tempted to do market timing around. And I think we've learned that it's probably impossible to do effectively. Well, we did a whole episode on how market timing is really the question that's asked all the time, just in different ways. Exactly. And lastly, have discussions with us, with your advisors, and make sure you understand issues such as inflation, interest rates, and other factors that could impact your investment returns. And that's all part of making sure that you're in the right portfolio mix and have the right diversification. Well, I find it interesting that there are people I run into all the time that want to ask questions. Let's say I was on the golf course a few weeks ago and I was paired up with my younger guy and on about the 14th hole, he said, I've been meaning to ask you this the whole round, but I just, I didn't want to bug you. You're not working right now. You're golfing, but I just need to ask you a couple of questions. And I said, yeah, go for it. Happens all the time, right? You go to family functions or whatever. People always want to know about things like the stock market or Bitcoin or whatever. So this guy shared a story with me about how, I don't know when, early days, he bought half of a Bitcoin for $50. Well, Bitcoin, I look today, is 61,000 Canadian dollars. So his $50 has gone to 30,000 or more dollars since he bought it. He should become a hedge fund manager. (laughs) Well, his question, he said, I'm completely stressed because here's my situation. I'm a student. I have lots of debt. Every year, I worry about carrying this debt, how I'm going to fund it. But I'm scared if I sell this half a Bitcoin and pay off my debt, will I miss out on the next growth rate? What would you do? And I said, look, I can't tell you what to do. I can only tell you what I would do if I was in your situation for myself. If I had purchased something for $50 and it was now worth $30,000 and I had done nothing to earn that extra $29,950 and I had debt that I could pay off that would make my life easier, I would sell it and pay off the debt. That's a win. Take it as a win. The reason I'm even bringing that up, Greg, in this episode is that if there are people out there and we run into them and you want to ask questions about things like this, this is all complicated stuff. So we talk about monetary policy like everybody knows what it is. It's not simple. Quantitative easing is not simple. Fiscal policy is not simple. I mean, but what is simple is what you pointed out, those three things. Make sure you've got the proper asset allocation. Don't time markets and look for advice and planning. Right on. So, sorry, that was a little Good bit wrap of a up. long wrap up. But anyways, anything else before we kill it for no, today? No, I think we've done all we can. Okay, well then, I guess till next time. We'll look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy.
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.